Hello, and welcome to the Strategic Podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, Will NATO Survive as a Credible Alliance, and Should It? And our guest today is Peter Mansour, retired colonel in the U.S. Army and chair of military history at Ohio State University. Peter, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. So you wrote the historical background in this piece. So let's start with just a little refresher on the history for people who may have forgotten their International Relations 101. Take us through the sort of origin story of NATO, why and how it was created. Sure. Well, the creation of NATO was occasioned by the outbreak of the Cold War in Europe after World War II. Uh, with the Berlin crisis in 1948 and the uh, Berlin airlift, the Western allies, what became the Western allies, realized that uh, the Soviet Union presented a military threat uh, to the West. And to counter this threat, uh, NATO was created the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And its linchpin really was U the United States. The United States was the only nation that had the industrial power, uh, the nuclear capability, uh, air power, and so forth to stem a Red Army attack should one occur. Uh, and the real um, unique part of this alliance was Article 5 of the North Atlantic Charter, which said an attack by attack on any member of the alliance was an attack on all of them, and all alliance members were, were then obliged to um, assist the attacked party in whatever way that uh, they deemed uh, appropriate. And this alliance has held up uh, not only for the four decades of the Cold War, but into the post-Cold War period. So going on uh, 60 years now, and uh, it's proven incredibly resilient, uh, even through a lot of turmoil. Now, just a little more on the history here. Two countries that loomed large in Europe before the creation of NATO and also played big roles afterwards. You discussed this in your piece at Strategica. Germany and France, specifically sort of German remilitarization and French disenchantment are big parts of the NATO story as we look back at sort of the early decades of the organization. Walk us through what happened in, in each of those cases. And certainly early on, what to do about Germany was a, a really sensitive issue. Uh, France had been invaded three times by Germany in the previous uh, 75 years or so, and it didn't want to be invaded again. And so it was hesitant to uh, sign up to having Germany as a member of the alliance and to allowing Germany to rearm. And it took um, a lot of cajoling, a lot of arm twisting, and and, uh, and finally, um, you know, basically a lot of inducements to get the French to agree to German rearmament. And they did so, provided that Germany uh, would not use its forces um, outside of NATO, uh, cha NATO chain of command and outside of Europe. So uh, German rearmament uh, eventually became a reality in the mid-50s. Because the United States and the other members of NATO realized without German ground troops, it was going to be impossible to present a credible conventional deterrent to the Red Army in Europe. And, and even with German 
military forces, uh, a, conven a credible conventional deterrent was, was really not in the cards until the 1980s. Uh, before then, um, the reliance really was on the nuclear deterrent to keep uh, the Soviet Union from, from attacking the West. But the French, uh, for, them, for their uh, part of it, uh, eventually did acquiesce to German rearmament, and then they grew uh, disenchanted with what they deemed U.S.-British control of the alliance, and they wanted um, a greater say in alliance matters. They wanted a, a tripartite directorship, uh, Great Britain, the United States, and France to be in charge. Um, the United States gave them the cold shoulder, and eventually... Uh, this led to f the French with military withdrawal from NATO command in the 1960s when Charles de Gaulle was the president of France. So let's talk about NATO once the Cold War comes to an end. Um, actually, let me put the big question to you first. How much credit does NATO deserve for the fact that the Cold War never got particularly hot, at least in Europe? Uh, NATO was, um, I think it presented a, a very credible uh, deterrent to Soviet military adventurism. We, we, we did see another crisis over Berlin in 1961. Uh, but after that, there really wasn't a lot of military saber-rattling in Europe. Uh, NATO had very credible conventional forces, very credible nuclear forces, and I think the Soviet Union realized that any attack on the West, which it might not want to wanted to have done anyway, uh, but any potential military uh, attack would have been uh, met with stiff resistance and, and eventually would have resulted in the destruction of uh, Soviet society, probably along with a lot of Western Europe and maybe even the United States. So NATO was crucial as the military component of uh, the containment strategy in the Cold War. And it played um, a huge role in this regard, but it also ha played other roles in Europe. Uh, among them, it was a key uh, part of uh, the integration mechanism that allowed European, Un European nations to become uh, closer, more closely aligned uh, with one another, uh, a, a process which is still playing out today. Okay, so NATO... After the Cold War, you note in your piece at Strategica that after the fall of the Iron Curtain, this is a quote from the piece, NATO found new meaning in out-of-area missions in Europe, South Asia, and Africa. So the question here, Peter, was this, was this mission creep or adaptation? In other words, was NATO just sort of needlessly self-perpetuating after the Cold War even though the logic behind it had sort of expired or did it make sense to sort of repurpose the alliance in this fashion? Well, this was a huge discussion among the alliance members, whether it had served its purpose and, and either it should just uh, slowly fade away or just try to remain the same, or whether uh, it should adapt to the new realities of the post-Cold War world. And eventually, the um, decision came to repurpose the alliance to make it um, uh, a useful me mechanism in the post-Cold War world. And that meant that uh, NATO was going to have to engage in out-of-area operations, first in the Balkans in the 1990s, uh, where it became part of uh, the forces that intervened to stop the Bosnian Civil War and then 
um, to stop the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. And then uh, also really out of area, out of Europe in uh, terms of uh, the mission in Afghanistan and then, uh, and then the, the engagement uh, with Libya. Now, the mission in Afghanistan is, is very unique because it was predicated on the NATO response to 9-11, the terrorist attacks on the U.S. homeland. The only time that Article 5 has ever been invoked, uh, but after Osama bin Laden and, and al-Qaeda attacked the United States, the United States invoked Article 5, NATO responded, first with um, an, an, air, uh, an air operation to guard American cities, and there were NATO fighter jets flying over U.S. cities uh, for many months after 9-11. But then, as part of the operations in Afghanistan, which was predicated on taking down and destroying al-Qaeda, the threat that had attacked the American homeland, so NATO took on a mission there, uh, in, a, in the Afghan war. And these were, these were very unique uh, missions for NATO. You had European forces in South a Asia um, fighting uh, uh, the Taliban and fighting Al-Qaeda. And it was uh, a, obviously um, of great uh, import to the European, some European states to have their forces uh, used half a world away. Another provocative point in your piece, you mentioned NATO's expansion eastward into Eastern Europe, parts of the old Warsaw Pact. And of course, this is the source of a lot of the anxiety around Vladimir Putin's Russia at this point, which is what happens if he goes after the Baltics, which are NATO members. And you also mentioned in this piece, quoting you here again, quote, only a handful of NATO members meet the alliance benchmark of spending at least 2% of their GDP on defense, end quote. So – Peter, what do you make of the argument um, that we heard a lot actually with the beginnings of the, the Russian activities in um, Crimea that we've been too we've been too expansive with NATO, that especially given the resource constraints, it was foolish to push the alliance this far to the east because A, you inevitably invite suspicion, if not outright aggression from Russia, and B, if they act on it, we're in no position to actually deliver on our promises to protect that much territory. So the expansion of uh, NATO, if you are a realist in, in, in that school of international relations, uh, you believe that we unnecessarily antagonized Russia by, by pushing NATO's boundaries to the east. But in fact, the NATO expansion occurred in the 1990s uh, during the Clinton administration. And I think the, the purpose that they envisioned for NATO's expansion was not a a hard power one, but it was a integrationist mechanism to um, to pull Europe more closely together. And if you uh, put these new nations into NATO, it would be part of the mechanism along with the European Union that would tie Europe together and integrate it. And and I think that was the purpose. Now, since Vladimir Putin's um, uh, uh, since his aggression in Georgia and Crimea and now Ukraine and his saber rattling uh, in the last few years, people have relooked at saying, oh, you know, why, why didn't we see this coming? But in fact, uh, it wasn't aimed at containing Russia or 
or uh, making it difficult for Russia to to be part of Europe. It was it was a mechanism to further integrate Europe, and I think it needs to be seen in that light. Now, in in, in terms of protecting these new NATO members, um, it will be the collapse of the alliance if NATO did not come to the defense of one of its new members in the East, as difficult as that might seem. And the failure of NATO member states to spend adequately on defense, the alliance be- benchmark is 2% of gross domestic product, um, has made it very difficult uh, to provide the kind of capabilities necessary to, to stop the Soviet or the, uh, Russia from doing what it's doing uh, and pre- pre- present a credible threat. Um, and it really takes U.S. leadership because the United States is the only nation really with the capabilities to present a credible deterrent to Russia these days. And this is something that NATO is going to have to contend with uh, going forward to get their member states to spend adequately on defense. To that point, what about the notion when we're talking about the pittance that many of these European nations spend on defense, the notion that we've created to use the economic locution, a moral hazard problem. That is because the United States has shouldered so much of the security burden here, we've created incentives for the Europeans to skimp on taking care of themselves. Do you agree with that criticism? And if you do, what can we realistically do about it? Well, certainly there's some of that. I mean, the good news is that the Europeans feel uh, feel peaceful. And given the rest of the course of European history, I think that's a very good thing. And people tend to forget that when they say, oh, how could we, you know, Europeans are so pacifistic. This is terrible. Well, compared to uh, what they were before 1945, this is really a, a, a good deal <laughs> for humanity. Um, but uh, United States uh, defense spending is declining. And um, it's, it's making it much more difficult for the United States to pick up the slack um, in Europe. You know, we have this pivot to Asia, so we're applying more resources there. We've got uh, huge conflicts ongoing in the Middle East. And I think um, it's already gotten to the point where Europeans are going to have to wake up and realize uh, the United States is not going to provide us all the security that we desire because their attention is focused elsewhere and, that w- and will be for the foreseeable future. So final question, just in brief. Let me just resubmit to you the, the question that animates this entire issue in Strategica. Will NATO survive as a credible alliance? I believe it will. NATO has been incredibly useful um, in a variety of uh, roles as, a, uh, as part of the containment strategy, as an integration mechanism for Europe, and as a, uh, and as a means of uh, fighting uh, wars out of area in Afghanistan and Libya and elsewhere. Um, to see it dissolve now, I think, would be um, a tragedy. I think rather we should work to reform NATO, make it relevant, and make ne- member states live up to their uh, alliance commitments. And uh, that's going to take um, good leadership and, and good diplomacy going forward from this point. All right. My guest has been Peter Mansour, retired colonel in the U.S. Army and chair of military history at Ohio State University. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's military history working group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Peter, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. 
for the Hoover Institution. I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.